Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. The flyer in the in the uh, bulletin or whatever to this. How many of you saw the picture that Darcy had picked out for that little guy in the superhero costume? Remember that thing? I have four kids at home. My oldest is 18. She's graduated from high school now. Um, then I got three boys. They go down in age 16, 14, and 10. When my youngest, his name's Isaac. Um, when Isaac was about three, four years old, he came, I was sitting on my bed in, in, in our room, just kind of relaxing. Isaac comes running into the bedroom. He has a blanket tied around his neck and he's in his underwear. That's all he's wearing. He jumps up on the bed, does a little Peter Pan pose, and he says, Dad, aren't I awesome? <laughs> Unashamedly, completely and totally believing that he is what? Awesome. And Dad says, you, you're the best. You are so awesome. He jumps off the bed, flies down the hall, cape waving in the wind, and he... He goes off and, you know, fights whatever, whatever bad guys there are to be fought out there. What happens? What happens between that age? Because here's the strange thing. Did you know that none of you were born with low self-esteem? Doesn't exist. In fact, none of you were born with any self-esteem. Kind of neutral there at the moment. And then something happens. Something happens when we are innocent and young and we don't know better, we actually might have enjoyed ourselves. And then it goes somewhere else for a lot of us. Because if any of you jumped up here right now, hopefully more clothed than underwear and a blanket, and said, aren't I awesome? Every one of you would think what? Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Narcissistic. Narcissistic. You know, all sorts of diagnosis you can throw on that, isn't there? Somehow that becomes unacceptable. Something changes in there. We're going to have to um, figure out what it looks like to have healthy self-esteem. Uh, what is self-esteem? All sorts of things around all of this. So this is kind of where we're going on all of this here. We're going to spend an awful lot of time actually trying to figure out what is self-esteem? How in the world does our self-esteem get shaped? Where does it get built? How do, we, how, do, how do I get my self-esteem and how do you get your self-esteem? And how do you get yours? We're not going to ask about yours, but um, how, do we, how do we end up getting that shaped? That's some of the big questions we're going to wrestle with this time. Um, the worst loneliness is not to be comfortable with yourself. little Mark Twainanism. There are a lot of people who just absolutely don't enjoy their own company. The more they have to be by themselves or with themselves, um, the more disappointed they are. And so a really good strategy people have learned is to say, I'm actually going to do my best not to think about myself. I'm going to do my best just to completely check out. And they, they actually turn off some of the sensory stuff in their bodies and brains to where if you ask them, what do you feel, they genuinely, truly, honestly answer, I don't know, because they don't want to be that close to themselves. They just, it is super uncomfortable. Another great theologian of our time, Queen Latifah. Um, you almost have to step outside yourself and look at you as if you were someone else you really cared about. 
the rest of the quote goes on, I really cared about and really wanted to protect. Would you let someone take advantage of that person? Would you let someone use that person you really cared about? Or would you speak up for them? If it was someone else you cared about, you'd say something. That's just how it is. We treat other people oftentimes better than we treat ourselves. Queen Latifah. Another great person to consider. Dad, I said I suffer from low self-esteem. Is that a fact? From now on, my goal is to feel better or feel good about myself. So you're going to work harder and that everything builds some character? No, I'm going to whine until I get the special treatment I like. <laughs> and then I wonder if anyone else is uh, scared about the future as I am. I found that immediate gratification is the only thing that helps me. <laughs> That's week three, how to have immediate gratification. That way, just, we don't have to work hard, as hard with all this stuff. Has anyone noticed that God sometimes has a weird sense of humor? I had told Ben... Uh, what the topic was going to be for this summer back in around October. Uh, I have been doing a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of um, understanding so that uh, I can help each of you come to a really good understanding of what self-esteem kind of looks like and how it works. And then I, I, I truly believe that God says the intellectual knowledge is not enough. And what has happened is I have found out um, that when you have to wrestle with this personally, you learn this information much deeper. Does that make sense? I am honored to be able to talk to you for the next eight weeks about self-esteem, and yet the previous six weeks have probably been some of the harder weeks that I've ever experienced in my personal life, which has rattled my self-esteem to the core. I wish I could stand up here in front of you, and I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that I had all the answers. I wish I could tell you that if you take these notes, if you fill in these blanks, if you do these three steps and two exercises and turn around twice, then you're going to have this all figured out. If it's okay, I would like to um, suggest that we are all on this journey together and that I don't have all of the answers. In fact, as I've wrestled with some of this in my own life, um, I actually have some more questions that I didn't have six weeks ago. And I'm sitting here going, I should probably come up with the answers before I start, start, start teaching. And I'm going to resist the temptation to do that, if that's OK. Um, I believe, and I don't like it, and I rally against it with everything inside of me, but I believe that those difficult times, the times when we don't have all the answers, the times when we struggle and wrestle and have to fight and get bloody noses and all of that, I think those times shape us more than the nice times. And I know, I know 
that I'm not the only one in the room here who's sitting in some of that. I do know one thing, though. I do know that even though I question, I wrestle, I'm trying to figure this out, that somehow, some reason, God still has not changed. God isn't surprised by what I'm going through and probably isn't surprised by what you're going through. And so part of this journey is going to be how to reconcile that. How can we be in pain and hurting and questioning the deep core of who we are and still find some level of foundation, truth, solid ground, all of that stuff? Think we can wrestle with that together? Would that be okay? Okay. If you ask me a question, I might answer, I don't actually know. That's when we usually will ask Jimmy down here. He's the guy, he usually knows most of the answers. So we'll just defer to Jimmy on some of this. Is that all right? Okay. Um, is that okay, Jimmy? Excellent. We'll see what happens. Um, then here's the question I have for you. When you hear the word self-esteem, oh, by the way, I like talking, so I'm going to ask lots of questions, and then we're going to have just, this is a discussion format. When you hear self-esteem, thoughts, words, ideas, what comes to your mind, please? Psychobabble. Psychobabble. Excellent. Let's go to Imago Day and hear an eight-week class on psychobabble. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came? What else? <laughs> yes. What you think of yourself. Okay, kind of trying to define it, Mitch. Acceptance of yourself. Acceptance of yourself, all right, yep. Positive. Positive. And self-care. And self-care, okay, yeah. Identity. Identity. Never enough. Never enough. <laughs> kind of this cracked cup that can't ever be filled. Are you raising your hand or just? Okay, see? Please. The position in which you hold yourself. Okay? Yeah? Negativity. Negativity. So we have positive, I think you said, and negative, and psychobabble right in the middle. Excellent. Yep. Standing up for yourself. I like that. That's good. Yep. The value you give yourself. Okay, yep. Hard balancing act. Hard balancing act. That's a good answer. I should write that down. Yeah. Psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. I'll bring my couch next week. We can all <laughs> lay on it. Tell me about your father. One more. Yep. Being comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin. That's a good one, too. This word is supercharged. A lot of theologians don't like this word. A lot of normal people don't like this word. It's psychobabble. This word here is actually tainted in all sorts of ways because some people think it's a good thing. Some people think it's a, not a good thing. Some people don't even think it exists. Some people 
it's, it's this weird, strange, bizarre enigma as to kind of what in the world it is and how it works. I'm not going to give you a definitive definition. I can't do that because as soon as I do that, you're going to walk out of here, you're going to go Google self-esteem, and you're going to come up with another definition, all, all that might sound better. Instead, what we're going to try to do is, in essence, we're going to be trying to move into, if you want to think of this, is what kind of relationship do you have with yourself? If we take it apart, what does the word esteem mean, usually? Regard. What else? Think highly of. Thinking highly of. So the word in and of itself, if we just look at, you know, cut it in half, it actually has more positivity than negativity to it. If we just take the, the pure definition of it, right? And yet, self-esteem, you can, it's, it's a continuum. I can have a lot of it or I can have none of it, right? So, what in the world is this, and how, is it, how does it play out? Um, what we're going to do, um, this is a, a really interesting, deep idea that people realized back in the late 60s, early 70s, how kids feel might be important. Imagine that. That was probably after this end of some long study, and they realized how kids feel might be important. The whole self-esteem movement got started kind of the late 60s, early 70s, and they said, well, if kids, if they're, um, this is how they feel, then we should probably start paying attention to this. We should start doing something that is going to help them feel better in some way. So what are some of the things they tried? Do you remember? For those who grew up in the 70s, might be one or two of you here. My parents never got that memo. Oh, they didn't. No. I'm going to guess you're not the only one in the room, by the way, so, okay. Maybe they had dinner with each other and talked around the table. To, to build self-esteem? I don't know, to make them feel important and know what's going on in their head. All right, so that's they maybe dinner, yep. No rules or discipline? No rules or discipline. That'll make kids feel great. That's, let's try that. Kids might feel good. Parents might not like that at all. Yeah, yeah. No spanking, yep, that came in, that was real popular for a while. <laughs> Again, memo might have gotten missed over here. What else did they try? There's a real popular kind of thing that they did. Free thinking. What do you mean free thinking? When the school started all this free thinking. Yeah, um, what I call the everyone's a winner syndrome. Remember that? Did anyone ever get a participation award? <laughs> Those are great. You didn't win, you didn't lose, you just showed up, and here's an award. Now do you feel better about yourself? We hope you like yourself better. They actually started to take away the whole concept of winning and losing. They started to take away the concept of grades. My kids don't get A, B, C, Ds, and Fs anymore. They don't. You know what they get? Numbers. They only get numbers. Checks, pluses, little squiggly lines. I don't even know what they mean. It's a scale. Yeah, and, and so the whole idea of we can't, we can't actually do something that might make the kid feel bad um, got kind of instituted into how we, how we live our world. 
And everyone thought, okay, this is going to be great. This is going to make people start feeling better. What actually happened? Oh, I'm going to go back here. Anyone know what happened with that experiment? The what? What do you mean the winners got angry? Yeah. I just worked my butt off. I kicked all of your guys' butts, and you all get awards? What's up with that? Sounds like soccer. <laughs> Sounds like soccer. Yeah. All this work and a one-one tie. Um, it actually, lots of studies have now shown that as they have tried to improve self-esteem by bringing the bar down and making everyone equal, it's actually led to a whole generation of entitled, narcissistic people. Little people, which is great. 30, 40 years ago, the whole concept of narcissism, of, of entitlement was way in the back burner, just wasn't, wasn't around. Now, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting someone who's narcissistic because it's just, there's a lot of people who think, well, there's actually another study of, um, of college students. And these college students do their, do their papers, turn them in, and one college student got a C on the, on the paper. He goes into the professor, knocks on his door, Mr. Professor, I don't like this C grade. I'd like a B plus, please. And the professor goes, okay, why? What's going on? He goes, I just don't like the C. Can I have a B, please? <laughs> no, you earned a C. I don't like a C. I want a B. And was indignant why the, why the professor wouldn't change the grade. Took it up to the next higher level, next higher level in the school, trying to get his grade changed. Does that strike anyone weird? I mean, I'd like a pony and a million dollars. I just don't get it because I want it. So this whole idea of entitlement, um, everyone's a winner. So the whole self-esteem movement hasn't actually, again, by lowering the bar, hasn't helped improve anybody at all. So here's going to be a working definition of what we're going to um, uh, do for self-esteem here. And again, we're going to tweak and play with this. But simply, it's an overall judgment of yourself. Um, how much you like or approve of yourself. And again, you can, this is a scale, how much. You might like yourself a little bit, you might like yourself a lot of it, but your level of self-esteem is gonna be just simply of how much you approve of yourself. Um, a feeling that you have value and worth. If I were walking down the street and in the gutter, in the mud, under the nasty, gross stuff that lives in gutters, there's a little green piece of paper, the corner of it sticking out. And for the last two days, 10,000 people have walked past this little piece of paper in the gutter. And as I walk past, I stop and I look down and go, you know what that looks like? It looks like a, a dollar bill. And so I've been down in the gutter, I dig it out a little bit, I pull it out and it's a $100 bill. It's nasty, it's gross, it's covered in slime. How much is it worth? Does its condition remove its value? Is its condition nice? Stinky, smelly, gross. A lot of us 
believe that if we don't look good, if we don't look perfect, if we aren't clean and glossy and you know, have the right hair, then our worth diminishes in some way. And so the idea that you have value and worth and it's not dependent upon your behavior or your appearance or some sort of external thing, that's where I think we need to get to. And we're going to work our way to get there tonight and over the next several weeks. That makes sense? Everyone tracking with me? How many would like to find a $100 bill? Kind of in the, my father-in-law the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, walked out of the bank and there was an envelope sitting on the ground, 1900 bucks. $1,900 sitting in an envelope, had a receipt in it, so he took it back in and turned it into the tellers. How much is $1,900 worth on the ground? $1,900. <laughs> yeah, not as much as I have in my pocket. What self-esteem is not because if we know what it is, then there's a lot of things that people think it is, and we got to um, not have that. What it is not. Um, noisy conceit is the phrase that I've heard. Uh, conceit is simply whitewash to cover low self-esteem. When I need to spend a lot of energy convincing you how good I am, um, how confident do I probably come across? Not, not a whole lot. So. Self-esteem, as we're going to be discussing it, isn't, isn't this, I'm going to feel really good about myself and make sure everyone else knows. Aren't I awesome? The answer is yes, Paul. Paul, you are on. It's not this. It's not going to be noisy conceit. Um, with a high self-esteem, you don't waste time and energy impressing others. I talk with my clients all the time about... Um, Internal validation versus external validation. That sound familiar to folks who might have been here before? What is, um, what is external validation, real quick? Pop quiz. When other, people, when other people validate you by telling you that you're good. Got it. So if other people tell me I'm good, I'm getting external validation. Um, what's internal validation? Believing that you're good. But what if someone says, you're not actually that good? Well, he says that takes you down a notch. I would argue that internal validation doesn't do that. It's nice if people like you. It's nice if, if people on the outside of you say, yes, I actually like you. But when our we internally validate, we aren't dependent upon other people's opinion of us to keep us at some level of self-esteem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice to walk around going, you know, I hope, I hope you like me, but I don't need you to like me. <laughs> I just don't. I'm pretty comfortable with who I am and how I am. And choose to like me, choose not to like me. You might be having a good day. You might not be having a good day. That's going to probably taint your opinion of me. So. Internal, ex internal validation versus external validation. Um, let's see, what else is it not? Uh, I think we covered all those. The concept of I am lovable or I am able to be loved. 
that concept right here is going to be one of the two main foundations in this whole self-esteem series that we are going to be doing right now. There are people in this room right now who are not actually sure that they are able to be loved, whether by themselves or by other people. Somehow, somewhere, they believe, they have learned that they are tainted too much, that they are broken beyond repair, that something disqualifies them from being able to receive anything that looks like love. That would be a painful place to live. And so, as we go back to the opening exercise we did, I want you to consider the idea and be open to the idea that you have inherent value and that you are able to receive love, not only from people outside of you, but you can offer that to yourself in a healthy, good, appropriate way. That's one of the main um, pieces that we're going to be landing on. The other one is, I am worthwhile. I can handle myself with confidence. 1980s TV show. Character always carries a Swiss Army knife and duct tape. Who is it? MacGyver. How many of you wanted to be MacGyver? Totally. I still remember some of those episodes. It's on Netflix now, so if you're not familiar with MacGyver, stream it. It's super cool. What do you think MacGyver's self-esteem was at? It was what? Fairly high. Why do you think that is? Because he's awesome. That's, yeah, he doesn't even need the cape and underwear. He's just awesome, right? He's got his pocket knife, he's got a Swiss Army knife, he's got his duct tape, and usually a paper clip if it was really hard, okay? When we believe that we have the tools, when we know that whatever comes up in life, I can handle it, that, doesn't, that means you don't have to walk around going, oh man, what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes? I'm not so sure I'm going to be able to take care of, oh man. And so you start worrying, you start fretting, you start creating that anxiety, it starts ramping up a little bit. With you, if you know that you've got a really good Swiss Army knife and a really good roll of duct tape, it's like, bring it on. I can be in a plane wreck, I can you know, be missing a leg, and I can, the plane can be on fire, and I'm still okay. I can fix this. We need to have... Um, a MacGyver attitude for our own self-esteem. We are worthwhile. I can handle myself with confidence. I don't have to be afraid of the next five minutes or five weeks or five months. I have what it takes. And again, I know that there are some in the room right here that they're not convinced of that. There are some who are going, I don't have anything worthwhile. I don't have anything to contribute. The only things that I do have to contribute are probably going to be tainted. It's going to ruin someone's life. I know people who their primary belief system is, I don't want to contaminate the people around me. Just my mere presence is somehow going to get on them, and they're going to be tainted. And I would say this is going to challenge some of that. It's a painful way to live. And I hope that this is where it can start to change, truly start to change. Now, here's the dilemma that we face. Oh, 
how do we still be true to Scripture and admit that we are sinners and yet still be acceptable? This is why self-esteem and the whole concept of relationship with yourself I don't think is talked a lot about in churches. Or if it is talked about in churches, they usually use words like wretch. They usually use words like um, despicable and tainted and sinful and all these other things. And here's the thing. I believe that if you read scripture, that that's accurate. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not perfect, nor is it operating how it was designed. It is tainted. I believe that there is sin. I believe that sin is real. And so how do we be, be congruent with scripture and say, yes, we are sinners, and yet we can still be acceptable? Anyone want to wrestle with that? Because if you have the answer now, we can just all go home. We don't have to come back for the next seven weeks. That'll be easier. Hand went up real fast. There it is. Because we're human. Most of us. Yes. What do you mean by that? Because we're human. All human sin. That's true. Okay. See? So along the same lines, like we're all the same. We are all sinners. We all. So you're no better or worse than anybody else. And so for all those words that you said, right. you could substitute human. Right. Because all those words are used to describe human. Yep. So the humanity means that we are, our self-esteem is already tanked. Uh, yeah. Not going to bite on that one, huh? Yeah. Because we're saved by grace and mercy. Right? Because we're saved by grace and mercy. Correct. So because Christ died on the cross, we can give up that burden to God. That's a very good, concise um, summary of the gospel. I don't disagree one bit. Wouldn't it be nice if you just had to say that to people and they felt good about themselves? <laughs> Again, it's frustrating that we bump up against that, that, that hindrance there. Yep. We've been redeemed. What does that mean? That means that we have been cashed in and given a new price. We are saints. We are sanctified. We are set apart for God. We are Totally acceptable, totally forgiven, and totally pleasing and lovable to God. Woo! Let's close in prayer. <laughs> that sounds like a creed right there. I like that. That was that was elegant. That's elegant. Again, I come back to the dilemma, and again, this word is this word is accurate because. Oftentimes, knowing those truths, and again, I don't disagree with you one bit. <laughs> I'm just reading off the card. Absolutely. I promise she's not a plant. That's exactly <laughs> what we're going to be doing this eight weeks. Because, I, okay. That, that is, that is, that's the dilemma right there because how do we assimilate truth because all those things are true and yet would it be fair to say that some Christians struggle with how they view themselves? Would it be fair that a lot of Christians struggle with how they view themselves? Okay. 
And the reality is, here's, and, here's, and here's the painful part. I believe that truth should have an impact on our lives. And so those who are believers, and again, I'm going to be very specific here and assume that not all of you are believers here. Okay, Just because you're sitting in this room does not um, necess- necessitate that you hold to these beliefs and creeds and all of that. But for those who do have some level of faith, I believe that that truth should actually transform us. It isn't just a cognitive piece. And I, and I, and I struggle personally, me, myself, and I. That's pretty good for self-esteem class, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I wrestle with the how. How do we do this? And that is, and that is the biggest question that I want to wrestle with this entire series. How do we actually transform and, and let that truth sink in and implement real change in our lives? It's going to be a crazy ride because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer it, but I'm going to do my darndest. I'll help you. Here's. <laughs> this is going to be fun. What's your name? <laughs> you sure? Okay. All right. We're going to enjoy having Robin in the room. This is going to be great. Did you know that scripture assumes self-love? Did you know that? Here's what it looks like. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is problematic if we are to treat our neighbors the way that we treat ourselves. Knock on the door. You piece of crap. Just thought I'd let you know while you have your coffee this morning. I woke up feeling that this morning. I wanted you to feel that too. Treating the neighbor as yourself. So, but here's the conditional. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. So, Mark 12. Um, Leviticus is actually the origin of where that, where that scripture comes from. Christ was actually quoting um, the Old Testament. That's the first half of the Bible that most people skip. Okay, Leviticus is in there. Especially Leviticus. Especially Leviticus, yep. But here's what it says, okay? You must not hate your brother in your heart. If we were to put exchange brother for self... How well do we do that? This is, again, how it assumes. Um, You must not take vengeance. That's punishing someone else. How many of us might actually spend time and and real intentional energy trying to punish ourselves for past mistakes? Um, You must not bear a grudge. Being able to forgive yourself. That is tough. This forgiveness piece is hard when you have to forgive someone who's wronged you, who's outside of yourself. But the minute you have to apply it to yourself, a lot of people get locked up on that and go, I'm not allowed to forgive myself. I have to keep reminding myself every day of the mistakes I've made. That's the proper way to live. That makes God happy. And then he comes up with the line, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And in case you forgot who said it, by the way, I am Yahweh. I am God Don't forget it. This isn't your ideas. These are mine. So this whole idea of self-assuming self-love, Old Testament, New Testament. Also the scripture that says, no one ever hated his own body but fed and cared for it. Ephesians 5. That assumes that we're going to treat ourselves good and right and proper. So I'm going to make an argument that says the whole idea of self-esteem and learning how to view ourselves appropriately is not self-centeredness. It isn't designed so that we can 
think more highly of ourselves and, and replace the position that God has. Instead of just say, come into line with what scripture has to say. Going back to that, that foundational point. Amen. So, a biblical and balanced understanding of self-esteem. Two important words, and we're going to spend some time doing this. There is acceptance versus approval. Can anyone um, tell me the difference? Wrestle with this for a minute. Go for it. Uh, I give you an example, I guess. Okay. So you don't have to approve of somebody's actions, but you kind of have to accept them, otherwise you're casting judgment. And didn't one of those passages say don't judge? One of the passages said don't judge. Uh, it's in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> we'll trust that it's in there. So, you can approve of someone. No, you can accept. I can accept someone. But not necessarily approve. Okay. What do you think? Acceptance is saying something is, and approval is saying something is. No, acceptance is saying something is. Okay. And approval is saying something is good. Something is good. Got it. So, approval assumes a goodness to it. I'm approving of you, as opposed to disproving, disapproving of you. Someone else. Yep. I think approval is more judgmental than Approval is more judgmental than acceptance. When you approve, you kind of compare. Okay? A couple more. To approve, something has to be at your needs. Like, that's okay or that's not. And to accept would be for somebody to be however they are and you just accept it. Got it. Got it. One more. Let's do this. Yep. I like that. Approval has a standard connected to it. Um, when my middle son, my third from the firstborn, was about two years old, um, my neighbor, who was um, probably late 60s, early 70s, his car had died just down the street from our house. And at the time, we had a huge full-size van um, kind of a custom van, because we had a pile of kids and it was just more comfortable to drive around that thing than a minivan, trying to maintain some sort of dignity. Um, and so I said, you know, I'll be glad to help you out. His battery died, so I was gonna give him a jump. So we jump in the, jump in the van, uh, pull it down the street, and I nose right up to his car. He has a big, you know, station wagon or whatever it is, it's a big car. And um, turn off the car, open the hoods, connect the jumper cables between the two, make sure they're all hooked up right, get in my car, start it up, um, and go around and, and I'm standing between the two cars while uh, the neighbor guy gets in and tries to start his car. It's not starting, it's not starting. And I can remember very, very clearly the sound of my car 
being put into gear, that clunk, clunk, clunk of the gear shift. Because Sam, who was two at the time, had crawled up into the driver's seat just to see what's daddy doing, you know, under the hood. And I'm standing between the two cars. And I was able to get one hand on, my, on the hood of my car and the other hand over here. And I was able to, you know, pull my feet up. I got one out. The second one brought it up just bumper height as they come together and crush together, okay? I'm now pinned between two cars. My ankle is smashed in between these two things. And Sam's smiling there, looking around, going, hi, Daddy, how nice to see you. My neighbor, did I mention he's not young and spry, okay? He comes out and is looking at this, and I'm going, I need you to get into my car, I need you to move my side, I need you to put it in reverse, and I need you to back up the car, please. Do you use those words? <laughs> Why, yes. I did use those words. Huh. And so, um, Mr. Cook, he gets around his car, goes a long way around his car, around my car a couple times, gets into the driver's seat. He puts it in reverse and pulls us out. And, and as you can imagine, my ankle was beautifully smashed. It was just, you can see the indented, you know, and it, it's just, it doesn't look right. You ever seen, you ever bust something, it just doesn't look right. So, I, again, cars are still connected with jumper cables. We still got to undo all this thing. Get all that undone. He drives me back up to my house real fast. My, my wife, you know, dear, I think we need to go to the emergency room. Here we go. Fortunately, my mom was visiting, so she just took the kids, and we jump in the car and, and drive to the hospital. At that moment, I did not approve of Sam's choices. They were bad choices. They were innocent choices, but if you ask me, do I approve or disapprove of this? The answer is absolutely not. Do I still accept my son as my son? Absolutely. Acceptance is unconditional. It is a position. It is, a, it is actually more of an act on the person who is granting the acceptance it has nothing to do with the person who receives the acceptance. It is a gift. It is a heart condition within me or within God. And it does not change. Approval all the time changes because there are lots and lots of things that we do that do not meet God's approval. Acceptance is unconditional and based on value. And this is kind of where it is kind of founded in. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were all screwed up, Christ died for us. Our condition was not dependent upon God's act towards us. While we were sinners. Approval is conditional. Um, 2 Timothy, we have to study to show ourselves approved. We don't always get it right. We actually have some responsibility in this. We have to try to make this happen. We have to study and figure this out. And some days we do better at it than others. So we have to work at it. We can fall out of God's approval. Is that okay for me to say? 
we can do that. We do not fall out of God's acceptance. That stays permanently. He doesn't unaccept us because of our sin. Is that good news at all? And again, how many of this is not the first time you've heard that? I'm going to assume that this is, this is pretty common knowledge. But I think we have to start here because the rest of the series is going to be how do we assimilate this? How do we move this from, great, that's just a fact I know, and this is now the ninth time some guy stood up there and told me this, and I already know this, and I could probably teach this. How do we move it from up here to down here? That's the biggest question I have wrestled with as I sit with some of my clients and they wrestle with their view of themselves. As a counselor, I'm always asking, how do I move them from here to here? And that how, that is tricky. That is tricky. But the truth does not change. And we have to land on the truth here in some way. Okay? Question. Um, does acceptance have to do with self and approval has to do with behavior? Yep. That's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, um, the person is, is how they are, but what they choose to do or how they behave is what is either approved or disapproved. Yep. Yep. If we go back three series of the Failure 101, um, our failures, we are not our failures. Failures right. are events, right. not people. So that's kind of tagging into some of that. Here's going to be a huge presupposition through all of this. Um, we need to acknowledge that we are flawed and broken. For those who are not flawed and broken, we have another room for you <laughs> off this way. Everyone else, stay where you're at. We have to um, simply accept the fact, and we laugh at that because we all know we're flawed and broken. I guarantee you that, the, again, there are people in the room, me included, who spend an awful lot of energy trying to make sure nobody figures that out about me. I don't want anyone to know that. I want them to see me in a certain way I debated whether to tell you I was wrestling with self-esteem because that, that puts me into this place here. I am flawed and broken. So being able to come to terms with that and simply let that be a reality without it being a condemnation, that is actually a better skill set that not a lot of people um, get dialed in and figured out. But that's what we're going to be working on. We get to embrace all facets of our lives, not just the esteemable parts. Again, esteem, things I like about myself, we're going to embrace all of it, not just the esteemable parts. And move to a state of unconditional acceptance. So, everyone doing okay? Breathe. Everyone fan the neighbor. Okay, it's really hot in here. This is the dilemma. How far can you get? How far can I get in the time left over? <laughs> All right, we're gonna crank through some of this. We're gonna go into turbo here. Um, right now, the concept of self-compassion is what they are finding out is actually producing the most change in people. The ability to say, yes, you are flawed, yes, you make mistakes but you still have value and I'm going to offer compassion on myself rather than try to maintain some sort of level of self-esteem. 
here's the problems with self-esteem. We're gonna go through this really, really quickly. Um, self-esteem, again, assumes, am, it asks the question, am I a good person or a bad person? Where on that self-esteem scale do I fall? Do I have high self-esteem? Therefore, I am a good person. Do I have bad, low self-esteem? Therefore, I am a bad person. Self-esteem is, again, dependent more probably upon the actions rather than the condition. And that makes it very, very um, susceptible to external conditions. Uh, the lady in the grocery store looks at you wrong and your self-esteem is just shot for the day. Um, it's, it's a very, very fragile way of kind of approaching how we view ourselves. In American culture, we have, we have to um, have self-esteem to have self-esteem, we have to feel special and above average. Because if you walk up to someone and say, you know what, you're very average. <laughs> Is that a compliment? No, everyone wants to feel special. I want to feel above average. And there's another very good um, movie that um, kind of summarizes this. When everyone's super, no one will be. What movie's that? The Incredibles. The Incredibles. Brilliant movie. Brilliant movie about a guy wrestling with his own self-esteem issues. Syndrome's a bad guy for those who have not seen The Incredibles. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Here's your homework. It is required that you watch The Incredibles. Just the honey, where's my super suit scene is worth the movie itself, okay? That's, that's the spot. When everyone's super, no one will be. So now there's this competition. I have to be going around, and I've got to be a little bit better than you. And if you try to be a little bit better than me, well, that just means you're conceited and selfish and all these other things. But I'm good because I'm special, and I'm better than you are. And, and, and do you see how that gets in the way of relationship? you see how that just kind of starts to screw things up? Um, Self-esteem actually starts to separate us out rather than draw us back together. And anything that starts to do that, I would argue, is fairly counterproductive to um, creating healthy relationships uh, with ourselves and with other people. Again, highest level of narcissism, um, the entitlement stuff, the uh, focus on, on we just want the kids to feel better, everyone's included, everyone's involved. Take a look at this. Like if I'm not pretty and people don't accept me for who I am, who I dress, then um, it'll make me feel bad, but it will just give me more reason to pay attention to school because I won't have anybody to like talk to the whole time. And then they started writing how I was anorexic because back in the day they called both of us Anna because we were really skinny. First time I ever heard I'm ugly. School. I was in grade three or four, and I was like, the first time everybody never told me that, so I didn't know what to feel. Then I just felt it all the time. I don't like my legs. Every time I wear a skirt, I always keep tugging it down because I think my thighs are fat. Either you're too tall, you're too short, you're too skinny, you're too fat. It doesn't seem 
so important what's inside to a lot of guys and girls. Like, no one really looks for your personality. They just look at you, okay, she's sexy, he's sexy. <laughs> I just started high school and I felt like I needed to be accepted. I feel pressure like that a lot, and then I try to go home and do sit-ups. I started losing weight, like I came back in grade nine, and I was thinner and stuff, and people just started talking to me like I had friends. They, like, asked me questions and, like, gave me physical and stuff, and then they're like, you have to be hospitalized. It's like, if I do know what it's like for them, I can't give them my teenage answer, but I can't give them my mom answer either. Yeah. Because they won't get it yet, you know? I don't even get it yet. <laughs> Ladies, what do you typically, well, let's not talk about ladies in here. Let's talk about all the other ladies out there who aren't here. Where do all those women typically find their self-esteem at? The media and society how they see it. Maybe. Acceptance from men. Acceptance from men based upon what? What they look like. Their sexuality. Sexuality. When does it start to change for girls? 12. 12? You think 12? When? I just say, do we even want to open that can of worms? <laughs> I, I would, I'm told that that's true. I don't, you know. Yeah. What, what grade, how old do you think most girls are when they start to question their appearance? Nine, eight. Studies are showing around third grade. Some are earlier, but usually for women, their self-esteem starts to change. Again, they go from that innocent, I don't actually pay attention to how I feel about myself because I just and hopefully, you know, just living, just doing life, and then all of a sudden something happens around eight, nine years old, and the comparisons, all this stuff start to show up, and you start to really wrestle with how you look. Guys, when does it change? 40. <laughs> he said 40. <laughs> Middle school, and what is it usually based upon? Performance. So, ladies, it's built upon um, how they look, and for guys, it's built upon performance, which, again, starts to just screw everything up. I have a saying, and I still believe this, and I haven't been proven wrong in it yet. The most fragile thing on the planet is a male ego. Most men are walking around scared, terrified that, they're gonna f that someone's going to find out how we really think about ourselves.
And so we do all sorts of stupid things to try to convince the world that we are better than we actually are. Because if you could see where I'm standing up here, there's a lot of guys nodding their head, okay? Don't look around, okay? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a painful reality. Now here's something that I found ironic in all of this. These Dove commercials, you know, there's, they go viral and all these other cool things, and they have this self-esteem fund and all of that. Um, I went to the website that is this whole self-esteem thing, and guess what it is? Anyone been there? Who's, anyone been there? It's an affiliate site for, I think, Metafast. Dietary stuff. I couldn't believe it. I was crushed. I'm going, this is a company that has it right. They got it. They're doing it. No, they're still buying into it. Isn't that disappointing? You, you have a questionable look on your face. <laughs> anyway, so even Dove is, is trying to say, we want you to feel good about yourself. Now, buy Metafast. Here it is. This will make you feel good about yourself. It takes away half of my material to present up here. I was, like, bummed. So this is the only one you get to see, probably. Um, Self-compassion, if we move on here. It is not a way of judging ourselves positively. It is a way of relating to ourselves kindly and accurately. This accurately piece, again, is we are flawed, we are not perfect, and yet we are still worthy of treating ourselves kindly. Again, this whole first week, we're just defining what this is. The rest of the time, we're going to figure out how to do it. I think the how is much harder. But this is what self-compassion is. We don't expect ourselves to be perfect or positive, but we are going to accept ourselves and demonstrate kindness and compassion towards ourselves. It's a way embracing ourselves, flaws and all. And there's three core components on how to do that. First one, uh, kindness instead of harsh judgment. <coughs> kind of redundant. Um, There are scripts that go off in our head when we make a mistake, when we look a certain way, when someone looks at us in a certain, and treats us in a certain way, and we instantly go to this harsh judgment piece. And instead, we're going to say, how do we implement this kindness into our life instead of having to um, always go to the harsh judgment? Second one is, is this common humanity. You already touched on it. You kind of jumped to the middle of my material here. We are all human. We are all stuck in this experience together, and there isn't one human who is better than the other. It is our commonality, and the humanity means to struggle, to be broken, to not be perfect. And then the last one is mindfulness. Anyone have a good working definition of mindfulness? It's kind of the buzzword in all sorts of counseling stuff right nowadays. Anyone have an idea of what it might mean? Awareness of self. Awareness of self. Close. Awareness of an accurate perception of yourself in the in what? In action. Okay. In a given setting. Being in the present moment. I'm going to stick on that one there. Robin, we're glad you're here. <laughs> no, DBT, they teach you mindfulness. 
They do. Uh, mindfulness is actually one of the main components of, of DBT. We're not going to get into treatment modalities at the moment. Um, mindfulness is being able to is being able to be aware of what's happening in the moment right now without any sort of pressure to change it. So, if I were to ask you, notice the temperature your body is feeling right now. <laughs> Don't try to change it, just try to notice it. Notice, notice how close the person is sitting next to you. <laughs> the person next to you is stuffy. They're, they're, again, we have been almost programmed to say, if there is something that I don't like, I have to change it, and i got to change it right now. And as soon as that happens, we've got to, it increases our anxiety level, it increases our response, what we feel is responsibility, and we get stuck in this place that says, I can't change anything, I must be powerless, I must be helpless, I must be not good enough. Whereas mindfulness, well, let's try a little mindful experiment right now. I want everyone to try to make it cooler in here right now. Go. It just doesn't work. I wish we could. If we have our own little bubble, but it's not going to quite work out. So mindfulness is simply saying this is the way it is, and I will be able to accept this and work through whatever, I, whatever I'm sitting in right now. Those are the three components of um, self-compassion. Nice. That is a painful mistake to make. That is a painful mistake to make. I have a story about that, but I'm going to hold on to it. Yeah. It's nice to spare someone's feelings. That's good. So biggest question is, why in the world do we self-criticize? This is a huge piece of this whole puzzle right here. Why in the world do you think we do this a lot? One primary reason, and you have to say the right answer or else you get it wrong and you're not worth as much. <laughs> we've been conditioned? We've been conditioned to criticize because we've been criticized. Um, thanks for playing. Nope. <laughs> to protect ourselves against other criticisms. Okay, that's actually good. I should include that. Um, that's true, um, but there's a more, there's a stronger... Um, reason. Um, that's what it is, but that doesn't why it is. Why question. Anyone else have a good guess? We have alpha complex. I don't even know what that means. Got to be better. Um, not quite. To establish value, not quite. This is fun. Um, you, it might be true. It's not the right answer. It leaves us in control. Say it again. It leaves us in control. Nope, not quite. We're constantly looking at other people and judging, comparing ourselves to them. This is actually getting fun. Yeah. 
Pride? Nope. There's a re it's, it's again, the why. It, it serves a purpose. Why in the world do we end up self-criticizing? What is the purpose? Measure ourselves against others to exclude. To whoa! I just say it again. To improve. To improve. Ding 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 ding. We believe that we need to be hard on ourselves in order to change. It is a motivator. Because if I, I can't, I can't tell you how many clients I've sat with that they make a mistake, just like a lot of you did, as you gave all the wrong answer. Okay, you're still acceptable. Okay? I don't approve of you, but you're acceptable. Okay? So many of my clients, so many of my clients go, I can't, I can't forgive myself. I can't be okay with myself because then I won't keep changing. And so they keep beating themselves up over and over and over again so that they'll change. What happens when you beat someone up over and over and over? Do they actually change? What does that, what happens? It actually triggers the self-defense system. It triggers the fight-or-flight system. And so the more you beat yourself up as a way to motivate yourself to get better, the less effective it becomes because now you're in, well, the fight-or-flight system, we're going to talk all about the brain stuff in future weeks. It's going to be really cool. Um, big chunk in the middle of your brain here. Um, that, that self-defense system, when it gets triggered, that fight or flight turns off the rational part of your brain that lives right up here in the neocortex, and you don't actually think clearly. You are simply running on autopilot saying, I gotta get myself safe, and I gotta stop being hurt. Survival mode. Survival mode, exactly. And when we are both the attacker and the attacked, is there any safe place we can go? Isn't that frustrating? Isn't it? And so this whole idea of I got to be hard on myself in order to change, we've got to challenge that. We've got to adjust that no matter what we do. When I think of grace, I think of something a little bit different. Um, I actually prefer forgiveness. And we can talk about grace. I actually have a theory that most people hate grace. But we'll talk about that later. All right, here's why. 30 seconds. Um, again, as I sit with a lot of my clients and I tell them, you're done. You don't have to work anymore. You are acceptable. You are good enough the way you are. You don't have to lift one more finger to be as 100% acceptable as you, as you need to be. And what do, they, what do they respond to that with? They don't with? believe you. Why? Because I don't believe in myself. They don't, they don't believe me. And it's like, I shouldn't get something for free. I want to earn this. I want to prove that I can work through this. And that is the exact opposite of grace. Grace is receiving something you have not earned. And we hate that. I hate it. And that is one of the hardest positions to move into that says, I will give up trying. Because what are we being told about giving up? Never, ever, 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 ever give up, right? And I would argue it can be biblical to give up sooner than not. That's grace. So it's similar to this, but it's, it highlights a little bit different, different parts.
um, when you're criticizing, you actually, when you're both the attacker and the attacked, the natural consequence is um, depression. How about that? That's a really good strategy. Let's do something that, that makes us depressed. Body starts to shut down, um, become depressed to deal with all the stress. Depression is I, I'm overload, 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 shut down. I gotta turn it all inward. Um, depressed people feel as if they deserve to be punished. Again, that's a great motivator to help you build up how you view yourself. I'm gonna be harsh on myself to help me do better. I end up in a self-protective strategy because I'm the attacker and the attacked, and so I end up being depressed. Beck's depression triad. No? <laughs> All the stress. Three depressed. I can. If you say please. Would you guys like written notes? If I provided those, would those be beneficial? I'll think about it. <laughs> Someone said, if I don't get them, I'll be depressed. Um, Beck. Beck is kind of one of the big names. Um, he has a really good depression scale clinically. Um, he has a really nice triad, which says, here's how to know if you're depressed. You think of yourself as worthless. Um, the outer world as meaningless, and the future as hopeless. Any of those three going on, or if you have all three of those going on, um, you most likely are depressed. And, and we're making light of it right now. Depression is nothing to make light of. Um, it can lead to some pretty uncomfortable and painful stuff. If this is where you are actually at, um, come back next week because we're gonna hopefully try to start changing some of this within you. So those are kind of the three things that, that again, as we motivate ourselves by self-criticism, this is where we most oftentimes end up. I think uh, a lot of the stuff you're discussing um, somewhat leads to a lot of isolation. Yeah. Massive isolation. Very good. Facilitating. Which is interesting because Self-esteem, again, the whole topic of how we relate to ourself. If it's not healthy, it actually hinders relationships with others. So as we talk about this, this isn't just all, again, self-centered. It is how do, we, how do we get the things out of the way so that we are more available to be in relationship with other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah, if you only have one of those, you're okay. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you which one is bad. Um, <laughs> we're all mammals, okay? Um, and so the, the mammalian caregiving system basically is built of, um, we are born immature. Alligators, when they're born, they hatch out of their eggs. Mom's nowhere around and it's good luck. Hope that works out for you. And they start eating anything and everything they can. Um, mammals, when they're born, we are immature. We have to have a, we're not actually fully developed yet. We're not done cooking. 
And there's still some really important um, uh, developmental stuff in the first several months of life that we have to um, have the right conditions so that we get everything that we need. We want to be close to caregivers. This is where I was going to show the video. I've seen the, it's really actually a scary video. That's why I decided not to. Um, the early research around um, little baby monkeys, little baby Reese monkeys, and um, what do they want when they are scared? They have this really terrifying mechanical thing with monsters and teeth and everything. And, they, and, the, and, the, and the researcher says, let's scare some monkeys now. And he puts this in front of this little baby monkey. And they have two things. They got food over here, and then they have this wire frame with a washcloth wrapped around it and a little face drawn on it. And every time, hands down, the baby monkey, when it's scared, has nothing to do with food and has everything to do with the warm, comfortable, soft, squishy thing. Once it spends some time clutching onto that, that, that washcloth pseudo-mom that is in the cage, it actually starts to turn and challenge the scary thing. Once it gets its needs met and has this connection, it's close to its caregivers, it now actually has some resources to challenge the thing that's scaring it itself. It is essential. It's not food. It's not these other things that everyone assumed was, was kind of the important thing for mammals and, and babies growing up. Touch, closeness, proximity. Warmth, touch, soft vocalizations. I am now going to use soft vocalizations on you. <laughs> just kidding. That just gets weird. So if we have all of this, again, if, it, if it's about motivation, we have two options of how we motivate kids or how you might have been motivated growing up. Um, first one is harsh criticism. Anyone want to give me an example? Oh, maybe not. I shouldn't open up the floor for that. Um, that's a good one. You're not doing it right. You're stupid. Yeah. You're never going to get it. Do as I say, not as I do. Okay. So, again, these are all theoretical statements that we've read in books and things like that. Harsh criticism, trying to motivate kids to do good. Or there is the, I would, I would argue, a more mature way of, you must be hurting, let me help. Some of you might have actually received that growing up. I'm going to guess that a majority of us have not received that. That's just takes an awful lot of knowledge on parents' part to be able to do that. Um, you must be hurting. Let me help. That, this does not put you into a self-defensive survival mode. This does. And that's why kids over and over and over, you might get them to behave in the next 30 seconds, but overall, do you, do you develop a good relationship with them? Do you, do you foster them to uh, do the best in school and all those kinds of things? It just doesn't happen. <sighs> self-compassion has benefits without pitfalls. It, again, the self-esteem stuff puts us into this comparison mode and keeps us isolated keeps us in the defense posture. Uh, Self-compassion has a lot of benefits without all the pitfalls. It, include, it encourages strong mental health without narcissism. It isn't saying it's all about you, it's all about you. All it is is the more balanced way of saying, you're flawed, you're imperfect, and we're still going to treat you kindly. We still simply accept you. It says um, we're there. self-compassion is there when you need it. Self-esteem disappears as soon as 
as soon as you're questioning yourself and your performance piece isn't as good, you're now going, I'm not as good. See, I'm not compared to everyone else. I'm, I'm less than everyone. Self-esteem disappears like that. Self-compassion says, it's okay. I know you're not as good and you're still valuable. You're still worth it. You can still, you can still be part of this whatever is going on. So it doesn't desert you like self-esteem oftentimes does. And it is not performance-based. Um, you don't have to be getting better and better and better to be accepted. That's an that's a exhausting rat race, being on that over and over and over again. A lot of the self-compassion stuff, there's a couple really good books out there that describe some of it, some really good TED Talks that talk about it as well. If you want to see it again, um, I can give you some references for all of that. But what it doesn't address, it, is it doesn't incorporate the spiritual side, the Christian piece to this. What I think it misses is um, who we are in Christ is objective, not subjective. Again, as Christ, as God views us, the way that he treats us is independent upon our personality, our behavior, while we were yet sinners. It's about his character, not ours. There's actually some really good resources about um, lists of who we are in Christ, what scripture says, gives you the references and all that. Um, again, it's a lot of really good truth there that I can make available for you. Um, what is really nice When we make a decision to say, I am willing to be judged, I am willing to stand before somebody and let them make an assessment of my behavior, of who I am, when we can do that and we know that the assessment is going to be fair and righteous, there is a tremendous level of security in that. As I have been over the last six weeks wrestling with my stuff, as I have been hammered in ways that I don't think I've ever been hammered before, this one truth jumped out at me um, in a very surprising place. Um, anyone read the Chronicle of Narnia series? Again, for those who haven't, that's your homework. All seven books by next week, okay? <laughs> Um, I've studied scripture a lot in my life, and yet when I want to know the character of God, I go to the Chronicle of Narnia. They are elegant. They are profound. Um, the last book in the series is called The Last Battle. And for Christmas, I got an um, audio book of all seven books. It's actually a radio theater performance of it. And as I was wrestling, as I was struggling with this, there's a scene in there where the last king of Narnia makes this huge mistake. Well, actually, here, I'll let you listen. He's talking to a unicorn, his pet. We were so provoked to leap on them unawares without challenging them while they were unarmed. Now, we are murderers, children. Found this on the fair. Then I am as well. Of course, said it was my Aslan's orders. The rats are the same. They all said Aslan is here. How did it my true sire? How could Aslan be commanding such dreadful things? 
He is not a tame lion. How should we know what he would do? We who are murderers. Jewel, I will go back. I will give up my sword and put myself in the hands of these Halomans and ask that they bring me before Aslan. Let him do justice on me. You will go to your death then. Do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death? That would be nothing. Nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? I don't know if you heard it in there. When you trust that the person who is judging you is going to be fair and righteous, the king there says, I will gladly go to my death if that's what I need based upon what I've done. We do not have to fear being judged by God. It's actually refreshing because it is accurate and pure and perfect. And so I pictured myself going, here's what I'm wrestling with, God. You know where my heart is at, and I willingly, intentionally lay myself bare before you. You can come in. You can judge me. You can do whatever you want with me, and I will accept whatever you say. There is profound freedom in that. And I don't think people who don't have a relationship with God, just they miss out on that piece. I think they can still do good in life, but it's still not quite as sweet. Third thing that I think Christianity offers as we wrestle with this self-esteem piece, relationship. We are social creatures. We, we run in packs. We're little Reese monkeys who need squishy things to run into and we're scared, okay? Picture the person next to you as that kind of that squishy washcloth that you can depend upon. That's, that's what they are. Relationship is how self-esteem is primarily formed as children as we are still growing up. That's why a lot of it gets tainted. Relationship I would argue is going to be one of the major healing components. Not just relationship with God, because I think sometimes that can be hard. He doesn't show up at Taco Bell with you. Relationship with people who know your story, who know your stuff, and treat you in a God-like manner, who say, I still know your story and I'm not running away in terror. That is unbelievably cathartic. And so... We're going to focus on how to make that happen as well. So, in conclusion, here's the thing I want you to walk away with tonight. And then, if you can stand the heat next week, we're going to start trying to figure out how. How in the world do we make this shift? If some of you, one or two of you, might be wrestling with your self-esteem and you want to bring it up a couple notches. Okay, We're going to work on the how and how to move it through to a, a better place. The most important thing is people who experience self-compassion are more likely to see their weakness as changeable. This issue right here is the number one thing. It's one thing to have a low self-esteem. It's one thing to have a bad relationship with yourself. It's a whole other thing to assume that that's permanent, that it's stuck that way. And so even tonight, you might not know how we're going to change it. You might not know what this process looks like. 
The only thing I'm gonna ask is for you to wrestle with or consider that you might be changeable. You might not be in a permanent state right now. If you can be open and receptive to that idea, we can do a lot. We can do an awful lot. It's the counselor joke, how many counselors does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to really want to change. Okay. Self-compassion, far from letting them off the hook, actually increases their motivation to improve and avoid the same mistakes in the future. Increased motivation. And it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm open to this, let's go ahead and try this. It actually says, wait a second, I have some resources. I actually think I can do this and I want to do this. This is not easy. I wish it was. I wish I could, again, say, do these three steps, okay? Say this prayer, do these exercises, and you'll be all better. Many of you have years and years and years and years and hours and hours and hours and hundreds of hours and thousands of hours convincing yourself of how you view yourself. Changing that doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen, and I want you to have the motivation. What do you think the motivation would be? Who do you think would benefit in your world, in your life, if you actually started to see yourself accurately? Is it just you that's gonna reap the benefits of that? Is it a spouse? Is it a significant other? Is it a child, family member, people at work? Who, who's gonna benefit from this? Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.